Hello and welcome to another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. My name is Robin Harford. I'm delighted to have today a friend and fellow author, Monica Wilde, known as Mo Wilde, who spent a year 100% on wild food. Note that doesn't just mean wild edible plants. There were some meat proteins and other things that we're going to find about in there. She's the author of a fantastic book called The Wilderness Cure. And so, Mo, welcome to the show. And before we get going, just give some give people a kind of quick synopsis on who you are, what your background is for people who haven't come across you before. Oh, hello, Robin. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. I'm a bit of a mixture of a lot of different things. I've been teaching foraging for many years now, probably about 15 or 16 years, which was really a response to being the person who knew something about nature and was looking for some extra work. I was bringing up three children on my own when a friend of mine was doing some work with the Forestry Commission for children and said they need something to do with the adults. So that's how I got into foraging. So I've been teaching foraging about 15 years. I'm also a research herbalist. That stemmed from a real love of plants from being an early, from being a child and a bit of a checkered career doing all sorts of different things really. But I finally got my master's degree in herbal medicine when I was 50. So now I just specialize in really infectious diseases looking after people with the long effects of bacteria and viruses, so Lyme and COVID and that. I was the eldest of five children, all born within six years of each other, to Kenya when I was about six. Along the way, my mother ended up living in the West Indies, my father in Malawi. So we were all spread out and scattered. And by the age of 16, I was a bit fed up with the grown-ups, so started living on my own, but carried on going to school. So there wasn't a lot of parental guidance at that point. And my dad was really old fashioned. When I talked about, should I go to college afterwards or something? He was like, oh, don't think terribly expensive. It'll be such a waste once you're married. So I thought that art college was the most interesting thing about that I could do. And at the end of a foundation course, they said, well, you can't paint love. <laughs> so that was my dreams of being a fine artist shattered. But I did end up working in the theatre. And that that really wove in and out of my f- life for a few years, that interest in the arts and that ability in the arts. I did some graphic design and some T-shirt design. And at one stage was designing some products for Napiers, where I'd started working with Napiers back in 95. Napiers the Herbalist is one of Britain's oldest herbal houses and it has been continuously running since the 25th of May 1860 set up by Duncan Napier and his mission was to provide health care for the poor because at the time there was no NHS and working with doctors was really expensive and it's something that I feel really passionately about myself in that everybody should be able to access health care and I think one of the reasons that attracted me to Lyme was that people with Lyme disease, long Lyme, were virtually abandoned by the NHS before long COVID happened in such huge numbers that people had to pay attention. Many people with long-term illnesses were just gaslighted and ignored. I have those 
there's principles of Duncan Napier about service. And also, I think because my father was in law, a real sense of justice and injustice. Yes. I started freelancing with Napiers back in 95. I'd been working abroad, had, had my children and come back to Scotland. You obviously have a really curious mind. Yes. Which is quite <laughs> useful when you're writing books, <laughs> especially books that are coming from your own personal understanding about the world. How did this crazy, let's not mince words here, it's pretty bonkers, isn't it, really, what you've done? It's extraordinary, Mo. How did it come about? I had this curiosity about the world. I look at things and I think, how does this work? It goes right back to being a child and looking at the natural world and looking at the plants and the fungi and being aware of the intelligence that is life, that wild spirit that informs everything, that there was more to everything than meets the eye. And so I've always had this sort of temptation to dive deep. And where there's a question, I've always liked an answer as well which hasn't always put me in good stead. I remember I found in a school, after my dad died, I found a school set of school reports. And one of them said, Monica should stop asking questions and accept instruction. I think some people thought it was a bit of a smart aleck because I'd always say, but why? During the course of teaching foraging, people would say to me, this is all very well. It's all very well telling me that you can make clean cleaver seeds, those little sticky willy bobbles. You can pick them off your jumper and toast them and make coffee. Why wouldn't you? And could you live off wild food for a year? And I always thought I probably could if I got organized enough, not one of my natural trays. I can do it. <laughs> but it was that sort of burning question. Could you do it? And I wanted to know the answer. And in a way, it was also a bit of a hunger strike, if that makes any sense. It was the timing of it in COVID because we had come at a period where we'd left we'd left the EU and there'd been this these pictures on in the news of lorries tailing back from Dover and potential food shortages. And I'm I'm very aware of food security in the system, the fact that people say that if We've only got three days of food in the supply chain at any one time. If a, if computers went down and all the just-in-time software went down for a while with it, it would be in havoc. Yeah. And we've seen that happen when we had beasts from the East and all of the shops were suddenly stripped of pasta and toilet paper. But as it went on, there was no bread, there was no milk. There was certainly out in the countryside, the commuter belt between Edinburgh and Glasgow, things were disappearing. And then when COVID started, people were also bulk buying and thinking, you know, what, you know, what is going to happen here? And I think when COVID first started, a lot of us really hoped that this was a bit of a wake up call to how far we're pushing the natural world and what we should be doing. And Certainly during lockdown, when people were only allowed to go for walks and they weren't allowed to drive anywhere and do anything apart from basic supermarket shopping, which according to the police did not include foraging for seaweed, which I consider basic food shopping. Oh, I heard about anyway. that. 
and away from foraging for food. Go and go to the supermarket. Yeah. Go to the supermarket. <laughs> like everybody else. Yeah. Catch COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but you saw people walking around and walking around the lanes and looking around them with these sort of big eyes. My goodness, look at all this out here. And I think in some ways I, I hoped that we would change. And when we came out of it, that didn't last very long. And by November, everybody was back to buying shit. Christmas was in the shops. And and then you got had Black Friday with all of that. Buy more stuff and buy even cheaper stuff. And to me, Black Friday is a bit like the, I call it the high mass day of consumerism. As if you think of consumerism as a sort of religion that everybody subscribed to. Because money is just, money only works because we all commonly agree that it's worth something. It's not even backed by gold anymore. It's just a system. Sure. That we believe in, that we adhere to. Not being, although I've been preparing and had decided to, to plan it more sensibly. I had enough stored up and it would have been a good idea, I thought, to get winter out of the way first. It's like leaving the things on your plate till last and eating the yucky stuff first. <laughs> uh, but I didn't want to wait yet another year because I'm not very patient. And when it got to November and I was, you know, huffing, puffing at the news and what was going on. It just seemed like a really good day to start. Yeah. And that was Black Friday. Wow. Wow. So let me pull up my notes here. I've got highlights. You say eating wild food is both culinary and healing, social and political, and will inspire future generations in their quest for a deeper relationship with nature and earth-centered solutions. Are you referring to people actually gathering themselves or are you referring to wild food being pushed through the food networks that give us all our food? Predominantly, I'm talking about people going out and picking for themselves and making those connections. But on the other hand, from a health point of view, it would be very good to have more wild food available, even if it came through supply chains or it came from landowners that had wild things. That raises its own difficulties about acquisition. Because when you buy something that's been farmed, you're making an investment in the soil, ultimately. By paying the farmer, paying the supermarket who pays the farmer, you're ultimately making a choice about how you invest back into the land. So if you, for instance, choose to buy organic food, you're choosing for the soil to be looked after without pesticides and fertilizers, you're, you're supporting a, a traditional, more closed loop sort of form of farming that also endorses the kindness to or quality of life for animals while they're alive and so on. So when you make that investment in food and you're paying the supermarket who pays the farmer, if you're, if you're buying organic, you're choosing a certain method for looking after the soil, for quality of life, for animals, for that closed loop of farming. If you choose to buy non-organic food, 
you're choosing to endorse a system where you know pesticides and herbicides and chemicals are used in the production of that and intensive farming is used with animals and crops and things so you make that choice by spending money now if you're buying wild food you have to look at that same sort of question am i buying wild food that's been gathered by somebody who is just taking is just going out and taking stuff for free and then supplying it into the food chain and there's no investment going back into the soil or am i buying wild food from somebody who is working within a community so there's a community harvesting plan so that resources are equitable are they also replanting hedgerows and spreading seed and managing populations or is it a farmer who's chosen to the organic and leave part of his farm wild and by not cultivating has a surplus of what we would call weeds that are free eating so everything is very nuanced and the difficulty with a lot of discussions around food nowadays is that they are very much geared on social media and by companies with the vested interest in things, the people paying for our attention, to be very polarizing, creating these very black and white arguments about food and food systems and inspiring people's passions over it so that the ability to have nuanced debate in some ways seems no longer to exist. Yeah, it's a real problem that. Yeah, it is a problem. And also because in some ways it sometimes feels as if at a point where we're appreciating diversity in humans more than ever, neurodiversity, sexual diversity, gender diversity, at the same time we want to push people into all eating the same thing. Yeah. And that's really problematic because you've actually got multiple different strands of food system needs and supply chain needs happening in different in different aspects so for instance if you're living in the middle of the countryside surrounded by small mixed farms and you can get your buy food directly from the farmer or directly from people who manage the wilderness up here get venison from people who manage the wilderness spaces up here and I know where that food comes from that might be one type of system whereas if I lived in the middle of a big city where you've got intensive farming of humans you might also need to rely on intensive farming of food because in a city of several million people they don't all have access to the land. They can't all get out to have yeah. contact with the growers. You've got this high intensity of population and probably different food systems apply. And what we're seeing in many cases on this earth is just this over-concentration on resources that's not equitably shared. Take, for instance, fishing, where we choose to only eat a couple of varieties of fish and all the rest get chucked back in the sea or thrown away, but they're dead at that point. So that's where you've got this over-specialization on just a tiny part and then this waste. It's one of the things that, that I'm fascinated with is the future. I suppose the question I wanted to know is, what's your vision 
of the future. You've talked about mass concentration of humans being farmed in cities, thereby limited access to the plants. I think because of the way that AI and technology is massively impacting our culture, what are you seeing? What would be the ideal food systems? You just spoke at the Oxford Real Food Farming Conference. What's the feeling there? Because obviously it's very paradox. We've got this kind of transhumanist, everything should be grown in vats, humans should be removed from the countryside, should be completely removed. And that's one extreme end of the rewilding community. And then you've got the moderates and it's a bit more blended, I suppose is the word. So a year of wild food, your blood's going to have changed, your brain's going to have changed, as your good friend Stephen Howard Booner, bless him, who passed recently, has said that when we consume wild food, it changes the structure of who we are biologically as a human. What does that lead forward to? Because without Gosh. vision, we have, we're rudderless, aren't we? Yeah, there's so much to there's so much to unpack there, Robert. I sometimes say to people, if you are what you eat, what happens to you when what you eat is wild? But that is a that is a very good question. But I think also you have to also look at, you know, what we think about foraging in the first place. Because here in the UK, a lot of people will think that foraging is a bit of a yuppie middle class or slightly hipster sort of thing. There's a billion undernourished people in the world who resort to wild food as some part of their diet. Where you can look at studies coming out of certain places like it from the from India to the Congo, not of people necessarily in hunter-gatherer communities like the Hansa or the Aceh, but people living in cities on very low wages, where they use the food, the money that they have of food, to buy calories, to buy rice, to buy maize, to buy wheat, and possibly sometimes a little bit of meat. But otherwise, their diet is completely supplemented by going and finding plants to cook with that. And it was probably very much like that at the beginning of farming here, even here in the UK, where people would farm calories and then go to the wild for nutrition. And what's happening now is that people are eating a lot of calories, but not necessarily being nourished. And I find I found that was one big change to my body that I found. And with the body comes changes to the mind as well. So interestingly, how the your very loyal body or the body consort, as Clarissa Pinkola Estes, I've been listening to her new series on becoming an elder. She talks about your faithful friend, the body consort, houses the houses the soul animated by by spirit and when you're not nourished it makes a big difference because you can't separate out all the bits of you and before i started the wild food diet i certainly packed on the extra kilos that come with being a postmenopausal woman who's sitting attached to a screen a lot of the time particularly 
particularly once COVID started and all of my outdoor work disappeared, my teaching work disappeared, and I just did more clinical work to make up the income. And very much attached to the screen and not moving enough. And um, but still, still hungry, eating a good eating a good diet. I've never eaten micro. I don't even own a microwave, and I've never ever had cakes and sweet drinks and sugar and that sort of stuff in the house. But even there's a calm value in your stir fried stir fry of carrots and beetroots and things like that and there's that naughty cheese snack in the evening or <laughs> so it's very yeah very easy and then what i found was that when i started to eat just wild food i wasn't hungry nearly as much and my instinct was to go for smaller portions so it wasn't i Never faced a point at which there was no food, and really because of lovely modern inventions like freezers and dehydrators. I wasn't trying to prove that I was some sort of bare grills and able to actually survive without any trappings of modern life, without a roof over my head or a car to go anywhere kind of thing. What I really just wanted to see was now, at this point in time, if something happened to the supply chain, could you do it? It's very relevant. Look at what's happened in Ukraine. Yeah, I was reading totally. a story the other day about how the Russians have mined, put mines in the forest where the people go to collect mushrooms. You know? And I think of all those people under siege in cities and in the winters with food supply disrupted and how the knowledge of their parents and grandparents foraging would have been so important. Yeah. In fact, the only, when I, after I published The Wilderness Cure, I got a letter from a chap, must have been in his 80s, bless him, who actually wrote pen to paper and sent it via my publisher, posted me a letter by my publisher, which was absolutely charming. And he said, your book has taken me back to my childhood when we were brought up by my grandmother in the countryside during the war. And she was widowed and there was no money. And she kept us all alive by foraging in the fields and the hedges. And it's amazing. Yeah, that's really quite... I found recently that my own books have suddenly exploded into the demographic that is over 65. And generally, 70, 80-year-olds are writing to me with their... And, and bless them, they're not hipsters. So hipsters are like monosyllabic you're lucky to get a sentence the elders they tell you a story <laughs> i find that fascinating that we've still got living memory of this way of feeding ourselves and healing ourselves and quite a lot actually i do think it would be quite i know roy vickery has done that masterful work with getting on the ground anecdotal information on how older people generally would feed, would heal themselves and the folklore around plants. But a bit of me would love to do a project whereby we get all these letters from the elders. I think it would 
from a social history and purely from a nerdy archiving the knowledge that once was, it would make a pretty fantastic project for someone mm. who's got the funds and the time to do it. But yeah, I can go, I go with, it's quite extraordinary reading how it once was, like you got from that 80-year-old yeah. guy. But And how in, in some places like Syria and Ukraine, it is. I did some work with Syrian refugees and they brought some scenes of their the plants that they foraged with them to this new land. And I suggested that maybe they didn't necessarily plant those because sometimes species and then move to new places get over-enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> but so it taught them what they could forage, forage here. But just going back to the food, so you've got this really nutrient-dense food where even on you know smaller portions small smaller portions where sometimes i would if i was analyzing how many calories i ate i'd be really struggling to get up to the recommended amount of calories but i felt sated and lost a lot of weight matt my companion who did it with me reversed his diabetes wow and i wasn't often hungry i was sometimes bored when the when the winter dragged on a bit and not just from a taste point of view, getting acquainted with more bitter, more strong, bitter flavors and real complete lack of sugar and sweetness. Maybe appreciate how exactly how sweet carrots and things have become yeah. going back to it. But as I, the longer that I did it, the more, it's hard to describe. The word's ethereal, really. The more ethereal I felt. I felt lighter in spirit. I felt younger again. I felt more vibrant. And some of that might have been being more active, although I was still working all the way through it of being more active and having to get out. Some of it may be from losing weight. If you're not carrying around a, a suitcase with you all the time, you can skip a little bit more. <laughs> but it was more than that. There was a real freedom in not worrying about where your food's coming from. And that sounds strange because I went into it expecting that there were going to be difficulties. Yeah. And and probably without without any stores or freezer, without the invention of jam jars, it would be a different matter how I have come to appreciate the humble jam jar. But going out, every time you go out for a walk, you find something to eat. And that's really... Um, that's really such a beautiful thing. I'm not a a Christian. I'm not. Re I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. You know, the phrases from one of those old Bible stories did come back to me quite a lot. See the lilies of the fields, how they neither toil nor spin. Yes, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Or see the little birds of the field. You know, basically that message was, and nobody feeds them nobody they're not slaves to the office they're not earning their having to go to a mill 
for 12 hours to earn a crust. But there is this generosity, this absolute generosity and abundance on this planet that is there for everybody. And the political side of it is that it is there for all of us. I agree. I wrote a 3,000 word essay years ago, it must be 2010, I think, called Wild Flow. And I pull out specifically, I re relate to that Christian phrase in the Bible. And again, like the Buddhist going out with the bowl and that it's filled. It's an abundant, I think for me, foraging reinforces, I had it already, but it certainly reinforces it even more. When I look at hunter-gatherer cultures and have researched some of the more anthropological side, that their worldview is more suited to that of an abundant worldview, and I mean that in a non-New Age abundant way, rather than the farmer which is more suited to, you got a famine, you're in scarcity mode. Whereas band come across a dry patch where normally they would expect to find food, they just move on. Yeah, Karma can't do that, doesn't have the privilege. But there's something that came up in your book that I've got big capital yeses next to it, and I just want to bring it up because it's relevant to what you've just said. There's an interesting thing about memory of food and things in nature that you never forget where you found a particular mushroom or a bush covered in berries or something incredible like that. Even years later, you can go back to that spot. And I'd noticed it in particular. There was one day I was driving back from Aberfeldy and I was with Gazer and he wanted to have a pee. So we stopped at a car park on the edge of a forest. And all of a sudden, from the end of the car park, there's this yell. I thought he'd been bitten by a snake in a vulnerable place or something. But no, he'd seen a massive porcini on the other side of the fence. So we went, we couldn't get over that fence. So we had to go around and through the forest to work our way back to find these porcinis. And it was a standard battery farm of conifers, row upon row of lifeless, acidified soil in trenches with identical conifer trees and all the rest of it. Anyway, I went back there about six or seven years later, because it's not somewhere I normally pass, and parked in the car park and went into the forest. And without even thinking about it, found my way to that exact spot. And what I realized was that, that the body has a memory that is separate to the memory of trying to think about things with the brain. And it's really interesting. Men and women have different ways of remembering that's been quite well studied. I remember reading, if, you, if a man stops for directions, this is a huge generalization, obviously, but... The research said that basically with men, you might say, okay, go down the road for 100 yards, then take the first turning on the left, after 50 yards, take the next turning on the right. That would mean nothing to me. I have no spatial awareness at all. But whereas with women, they were more likely to say, go down the road, pass the school, when you see the red pillar box, turn left, and then after the big cherry tree on the right, turn. So there's that, there's that slightly different sort of, ways of remembering things. And I've always been interested in memory because I also accidentally acquired a photographic memory as a child when the school I was at banned reading, <laughs> except for things that were on your book list. 
So after I'd reread The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe for about six times and everything else on the book list, I used to steal books and have to read them, scan read them really quickly and accidentally developed a photographic memory, which was very useful. Doesn't work, only works on paper, doesn't work on screens for some reason. Really? Anyway. That's interesting. What I found, and I've asked a lot of other foragers about this since, is about this body memory. The body will remember things. And I also wonder a lot about epigenetic memory, because, of course, even plants, which most people don't consider to be hugely intelligent, can pass on memories of experience through epigenetics from sure. plants to plants. If you cut the leaves off one side of a plant, it'll start to grow away from the site of the injury. But not only will it grow away, but its children and its grandchildren and its great-grandchildren yeah. will that who are never cut would also grow away from the painful stimuli. So it's really interesting, that whole idea that memory isn't just located in the brain. I read one of the reviews on a bookshop and they were frustrated that you hadn't come up and given the outcome of the microbiome. So one of the things that's come out is you've managed to get a load of reprobates together <laughs> to uh, to not copy you for a whole year, but to do, I think it's a three-month study. Some people are doing three months, some people are doing less. So anyway, just to not sound like I'm completely gobbledygooking here, Tim Spector, who is the reason for anyone who's listening, is the reason that most people now understand or know about or have heard about this thing called the microbiome, being that your flora within your guts, if that's correct, changes depending on the kind of foods that we eat. So, Mo, you spent a year. Did your flora change? Because you were sending, I remember you were, before COVID, you were sending poop samples to somewhere in Europe. And then, of course, Brexit happened. And I remember a specific rant about Brexit causing problems in getting your poop samples there. What happened? Well, there was a particular poop sample that travelled about three and a half thousand miles, going backwards and forwards into every which country but the intended one in Germany. Wow. By the time it eventually, and it eventually got there. It, it was past its past its use by date, and there was a one stage where I got a notification from customs that it needed a for something really weird. It was like a certificate of guardianship or something. <laughs> it was like, what is going on here? So I had to change and use a lab in the UK, which just skewed. It was only skewed the first set of results okay. but the rest of them were continuously with a lab two sets of samples myself and matt rooney and what we found was that there was huge change but by the end of it the people at the laboratory were saying this is really interesting and this is not what we'd expect to see in most people's gut microbiome wow these huge variations and changes in composition of the gut are much more extreme than you'd only expect to see that after a fecal transplant or something. We don't expect bacteria that have never been recorded to suddenly make an appearance unless wow. you've been introducing them by probiotic supplement or something. Sure. And... But it was very difficult to draw any conclusions because we hadn't measured it against a specific 
British population at the time, a control group. And there were only two sets of samples, and those varied from each other as well, even though we were eating pretty much exactly the same food. You know, obviously there were different genetic and pre just of gut microns where that were different to start with. There were some that you could really tie to food, like oxalobacter, which we know breaks down oxalates in the gut. And a lot of people find that they have to avoid food that are high in oxalates there. They find it problematic. But when we move from winter to spring, my oxalobacter increased by over a thousand percent to go and break down the oxalates. That's really, that's fascinating because often there's a lot of, a lot of foraging writers in the past have warned off people against eating oxa high oxalate plants. I know. Which that kind of, yeah, that's okay. That's a, that's one to ponder. That's amazing. Yes. And there's, yes, Google has a lot of foraging misinformation as well. Take if you take, for instance, wood sorrel. Yeah. Go to WebMD, and it'll advise you. It'll say, "Warning: Wood sorrel contains oxalates. Never give to pregnant women or children under the age of three. Yeah. The lethal dose is something like thirty-three bags, salad bags full of it. Now, you'd have to give up your day job to sure. be able to to be able to harvest that so that you could eat all of that in one sitting and kill yourself. Yeah. You would seriously have to work hard. It's a tiny, spindly little thing. And most people hardly gather much more than a handful, let alone 33 salad bags. <laughs> the other one is sea arrowgrass, yeah. which where all the studies have been done on cattle and cyanide is produced by ferment the effect of fermentation on those glycosides and actually doesn't affect horses or the human gut. Comfrey is another one that I've looked at. I eat comfrey. Yeah. I won't go into the details here because you'll have me on a long rant. Maybe we need to cover that because it's something I'm interested in because someone called me out on oxide daisy because again it's got pyrrolizine alkaloids which is the same as, as comfrey and it's no, supermarket honey's got lots of pyrrolizine yeah. alkaloids in it as well, if you really want to know. But they ain't going to ban honey, are they? No. If you feed baby rats 600 times their body weight of anything, they're going to have problems. I think what's come out of what we've just been discussing is that the variety, one, the oh. microbiome. Inspector says his advice is in his pop books is 30 plants a week. If you can get that, preferably more, then you're going to be giving your gut microbiome a good chance to be optimized. So mm. one of the things with foraging is that, like you said, with the wood sorrel, someone's getting a small little handful. It's a tiny portion. So you're eating a huge spectrum of wild plants, but you're not chowing down 36 salad bags of any one plant. No. We're eating little bits here and there, which in the totality of everything with, say, pyrrolizine alkaloids, are going to be buffering you. That's what Frank Cook, my plant mentor, always used to, his argument was, is that, but everything's buffered as a result. Like when you extract and isolate out, then you get problems. When you say eat 30 different species a week, that sounds like a lot. 
But in actual fact, really, in in countries that are being surveyed, people will have between three hundred and eight hundred species at their disposal of plants. And I, in the year that I did it, I wasn't name checking. If I'd wanted to name check, I could have just gone and found plants and just eaten a couple of leaves and put tick them off. So I just did what I naturally came across. And 90% of what I foraged was within five miles of this house. Yeah. A sort of urban, semi-urban, r- rural urban commuter belt between, between Edinburgh and Glasgow. But I what? ate... Over 300 species of plants, 20-something species of seaweeds, about 81 or 87 species of fungi. It was a huge variety. That's a lot. Wow. And that's in Scotland, which isn't, it's not like the meds where we where you'd have a climate on your side or sure. the coast where you are. So what were you doing? The, I can, I've got, you know, I've got military buffs on my shoulder going, yes, but what about the carbs? So what, just to appease the, the carb junkies, what were you, what were you eating? Marsh windwort, I think you mentioned. Yeah, there weren't, a, there weren't a lot of carb. There are not a lot of carbs in Scotland. Yeah. If there were, if, if you lived somewhere where you could get a lot of carbs, then you could do a vegetarian or vegan version. So in the Mediterranean, where you've got a better climate, more access to carbohydrate roots and grains, and you've also got more peas and beans and seeds for protein, you could do it without eating meat. But certainly in the northern countries where, you know, it's hard to get hold of carbs because when you think about big swollen roots and underground tubers or underground storage organs, as they're technically called, most of the large ones grow in countries where they have a period, a dry period that's arid or sometimes even drought. And then after several months, you have rains. So during that period of dryness, the plant in its own self-interest wants to keep a big underground storage organ full of sugars and water to keep it alive. And when hunter-gatherers like the Hadse in that, they go dig them up. You get these statistics, for instance, from remember reading a whole sort of statistical section in the Life Ways of Hunter-Gatherers, that, that great book, which shows your average rate of return on digging roots and things like that. It's very high. But in, in Scotland, we don't have that sort of climate. We don't have big underground storage routes. There's legend is that you can find a pig nut as big as a golf ball, but I ain't found one that big yet. Yeah. <laughs> I once found one that was two grams. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I got that from, I heard that from Marcus Harrison when he was doing his research in the British Library. And actually it, it wasn't found in the wild what the plantsman's diary had said of 1700 or something is that they were growing them it that they felt it could be grown as a commercial crop and that he the guy had grown one that was like this whopper but yeah the mythical pig nut <laughs> the pig nut and uh, burdock roots do reach a decent size 
but they're hard to dig up. They really are hard to dig up. And of course, you do need to ask the landowner's permission. I ate a lot of dandelion roots. And I do actually really love them. I would eat, eat them by choice any day. Um, marsh woundwort tubers, which interestingly enough was one of the first plants that they think were deliberately hybridized in the Neolithic times so that they would be grown nearer houses and be more abundant. They're originally a marshland plant, but they actually take quite well to being transplanted into areas that are not marsh. The trouble is with the marshes is that you also have a lot of rush. So you have this very dense root network and the tubers are underneath that root network. So harvesting them from a marsh is really difficult. But where they then grow without those marshland plants, and they do lend themselves to being transplanted and being cultivated as well, they are they are absolutely delicious. And then I also ate Alexander's roots and tuberous comfrey root. Tuberous comfrey being the lowest one in pyrolizidine alkaloids. They and I would have eaten much more because it's a it's a spreading plant, so it's ground cover, it covers a lot of area. And the tubers are big and fat and crispy and actually taste really nice. But the only problem is that they are like Jerusalem artichoke, incredibly full of inulin. Yeah. <laughs> Which means that you're totally restricted by the discomfort of a distended windy belly if you eat too much. Yeah. So in Scotland, most people would have relied very much on the hazelnut. The hazelnut was really important in Scotland. And traditionally, it's thought that other nuts don't really grow up here, walnuts and things like that. Uh, but I did find two chestnut trees, sweet chestnut trees that were particularly prolific at the back of a housing estate in Falkirk. And, uh, and I have actually, because of the changes in the summers and the temperatures and things up here, I've actually been planting walnut trees and other fruit bear fruit and nut bearing trees that you wouldn't actually normally expect to fruit in Scotland. But I think that by the time they're mature, they probably will. Sure. Because the weather has changed so yeah. much. Yeah. No, I get that totally. So were you, where was your energy coming from? And other than, so the nut crops and you're eating a lot of venison, which isn't exactly fatty, is it? So there's not much energy from that. So did this kind of reframe your kind of view on on carbohydrates being like the predominant energy shunter for us? Yes, because they just weren't there. And probably if you only ate venison, you could run into problems as well. But again, nature really does say eat variety. Yeah. It's a time in the summer when I was feeling a bit weird and I realized that it was, that, that it was lack of fats. But then normally in the summer, you wouldn't be right in the middle of Scotland attached to a computer. You'd be down at the shore. Yeah. Because during the summer, you either have to relocate to the coast or you have to go up the mountains into the alpine meadows following the animals. Yeah. 
because everything at ground level is all the plants are busy producing flowers. Yeah. So the roots haven't yet matured into anything worth digging up. The leaves have gone bitter and dry. Great flowers, but not a lot of calories and flowers. Oh, sure. But down on the Merce, you would actually, you've got lots and lots of fish. And a lot of the sea fish is really oily and fatty. And then you have all the the wonderful Merce vegetables that because they're succulents, they really fresh all summer. So you've got samphire and blight and sea aster, sea plantain. Yeah. So something that, that perked a thing, again, going back to the microbiome, going back to the experiment of coming up with a group of people all eating wild food, is although there's a group of people all doing it, I'm wondering what impact being in a band where you're living daily with each other, how that would also impact the microbiome. What I'm trying to get to is that Inspector goes on about a healthy microbiome, but I'm my question is, does living in close proximity with a group of people, families, with a group of people and a lot of them, would that have an impact on our microbiome? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's interesting because they do, there are certain features, I think, that people do find that families share. You certainly inherit a certain microbiome signature from your mother. I think Tim Spector's also talked about there are good beneficial bacteria that are now going extinct because mothers aren't passing them on to their children now because of cesareans and things like that and certainly with certain animals if you've got companion animals you can end up sharing a little bit of microbiome with them too but what was interesting was that my friend matt came up and lived up here for a year while i did that and we hadn't we haven't spent years and years developing the same microbiome but our microbiomes were very often quite different Sometimes they would move together, and I think that was in response to certain species, and particularly mushrooms. But at other times, they would do completely different things, even though we were eating the same foods. Yeah. Which does make it really a lot of what it says is that we, there's still a, an awful lot we don't know about the gut microbiome. Yeah. And it'll be interesting. So you're going to have these sort of 22 people stool samples, blood glucose tests, blood pressure tests, rate, BMI, all the health parameters and things checked. Some are just going to do four weeks because it is a big ask of people to live only on wild food for any period of time. Some will be doing three months. I'll say I'm looking forward to doing it again. <laughs> when it when I came off it as an experiment, I went back to eating what I was doing eating before which was mainly organic stir-fries, vegetables, occasional homemade bread and, and a naughty cheese habit in the evening and very quickly put lots and lots of weight back on again. So I'm looking forward to, to doing it again. And also to see if there's a little bit more of a theme and a flow going through what, what's happening with people's results. 
And although some people are preparing a little bit now, because it starts in the middle of March on the sort of spring equinox, and some people are giving up coffee and alcohol now, just the things they think they're going to find really difficult to live without. You know, I've asked people not to dramatically change the things that they're eating before, not to pre-health your thing. We should really get them all to go out for the two weeks before and just eat nothing but microwave meals and yeah, steak and eggs and sausages. <laughs> for people who are new to foraging, the whole world of wild food, plant and other, what would be your words of wisdom to people? What's If you've got one strap line, use an old word, to put over to the world, what would it be from your experiences of many years, not only as a herbalist, but as a forager as well? If you were to distill it down into something really simple, I'd say just add one thing wild every day. A bit like add an apple a day, add one thing wild every day because that makes you go and look for it. It's that those moments of communing with nature and being grateful. It really teaches you gratitude and and engages the yeah, the wild self within you. And it's something that everybody can do. You might have been told as a you might be put off as a child. Somebody might have told you that, ooh, all berries are poisonous and ooh, don't eat that, don't put that in your mouth. Um, there's a certain either ignorance or laziness that can sometimes come from people who haven't got time to teach children. But if you can tell the difference between a cabbage and a lettuce, you have the mental power to do this. Yeah. I remember my teenagers, you'd take them into a sports shop looking for a pair of trainers and you'd obviously as the mum gravitate to the nice cheap trainers but no they could spot that slight difference in a flash or a fleck on that trainer that that had an invisible neon sign that said this is the expensive trendy trainer that everybody wants to wear and they could spot them out of like 200 pairs of trainers we have that ability that innate ability to pick your friend's face out of a lineup of 500 people in a school photo or a, a stand in a football match or when you're watching it on telly. We have that ability. And for somebody new, you have that ability too. You really do. And this is something that belongs to all of us. And these rights are being eroded. One of the things that really came home to me during a year of living only on wild food was, was the community that I have become part of and how people responded when I was going onto Instagram and bitching and moaning about more brown food. <laughs> and people would empty out their little treasures and send them to me. Or Bob, who's a business seventies, who culls the deer on a lot of the farms and the estates because just even if you only eat vegetables, that doesn't stop animals being culled from farms in your name. And I'd offered to trade with him because no money exchanged hand. I didn't spend any money on food for a year. So I had offered to exchange the occasional deer 
for anything that I could produce, herbal medicine or crab apple cider or whatever. But when he was asked later on what was in it for him, why he'd given me stuff, he just said friendship, and which was really touching. Yeah. We are a community, and when it comes to fighting to preserve the commons, which are our, the commons, the communal, the community resources, we just have to stick together and speak out with, with one voice. It's very much behind the reasoning why we all formed the Association of Foragers some seven years ago was to create that visibility of our community, of people who care passionately about the land. Because caring about foraging is not about really about feeding your belly. Getting people interested in foraging is that, I call it the food hook. The food hook to make people look at this world we live in and go, wow, isn't it amazing? And my God, we need to protect it and find ways to live as part of it within it, but sustainably. That's you a can't great... do that by just telling people the logic of it. You can't do that by giving people the scientific facts about carbon dioxide. You have to ignite passion. Passion is what makes action. That's brilliant. So where can people find you, Mo, if they want to touch base or follow up on your work or come on your courses? I know you're right up in Scotland, but there's still loads of people who forage up there and people who are coming through the door and wanting to learn more. How do they get hold of you? On my website, I list events. I, I'm not doing events every single weekend. I have to balance life between writing and lecturing and teaching foraging and the clinic. I've also listed what Matt's doing. So anybody who wants to do a introduction to foraging course, there's various ones that run throughout the year and it's worth coming back from time to check for updates. But I'm now also doing wilderness retreats looking at the way that being in nature could really radically change our perceptions of self and things like that so i've been doing i'm doing a couple of retreats in april and then june and september i'm doing wilderness rites of the passage so lots of things going on but look on my website www.monicawild.com and as long as well, you spell Monica with a C, not a K, and wild with an E on the end, you'll get there. And there'll be and a the link book. to show notes to your website, to the Association of Foragers, and to other resources that we may or may not have mentioned. Like your- And the book is The Wilderness Cure by Mo Wild, and it's out in hardback and Audible and Kindle, but the paperback will be out in March 23. Brilliant. Mo Wild, as they say, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Robin. It's been lovely talking to you.